All right, now I ought to ask you all what the uh, what the announcements are. Since they're the same thing and they will be for for two weeks, I ought to let you tell me what's 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 coming up. That's right. We're going to have a thing on issues related to Israel on um, September 8th through 11th, and then the men's camp out. Better get my Bible out before. That's that's it for now. Something will come up in between. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of uh, silent prayer, so you can make sure that you are prepared to study the word, walking by the Spirit, uh, walking in the light, and if necessary, confess sin, and make sure we're cleansed, spiritually cleansed and prepared to study. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful we have you to come to in times of need and when we are very uncertain about the future, especially in this country, world uh, events, the rise of militant Islam and ISIS and the lack of leadership on the part of the leaders in many countries. Father, we know that the only way that we can have security ultimately is through you and that all things are in your control. Father, we pray that you would guide and direct our leaders and that they would be responsive, that you would raise up men and women who know the truth and who will act on it, men and women of integrity, men and women of of leadership ability. And, Father, above all, we pray for pastors and churches that will stand firm on the truth of your word and not back down, and that they might challenge and encourage people in their congregations to do the same. For we know that as goes the nation, or as goes the believer, so goes the nation. Now, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us with your word tonight, that we might be encouraged in terms of our own spiritual life and our own spiritual walk. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're continuing to work our way through First Peter, and this is this whole section is extremely significant. And it continues to lay the foundation for what Peter's going to say as we go forward. And tonight we're going to look at, finish up with verse 4 and get into verse 5. I thought, being somewhat ambitious this afternoon, that we might make it to verse 8. But after uh, amassing about nine pages of notes, just getting through verse 5, I decided, well, maybe, maybe I'll just only get through one more verse tonight. Okay, let's uh, review a little bit about the context Peter is going through a series of imperatives starting back in 113, and it's around those imperatives that he's structuring what he is telling his, his, uh, his, his recipients. And this, the last imperative that we saw is in verse 2, to desire the milk of the word. The precondition for doing that, based on the Greek grammar, is to lay aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. And it seems like every time I teach this, every now and then I get start getting emails or questions or something from somebody when I try to connect something to confession of sin. But if we think about this both grammatically and logically, if the precondition for desiring or craving the word and learning the word and growing is to first re- remove all sin in our life, 
we'll never get there because none of us can stop sinning. So this has to mean something else. And the idea in the, in the uh, imagery of the word is to take off an unclean garment, and that indicates being, being cleansed. So it's another metaphor, another picture for us of the importance of being cleansed from sin, which is the focal point of all of these various commands. And confession then in 1 John 1, 9 describes what has to take place for cleansing to happen, which is to confess to God uh, the sin in our life. And instantly we're forgiven of those sins and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So the command here is to desire the milk of the word if you've tasted that the Lord is gracious, which is another way of talking about responding to the grace of God in our salvation, in our justification. And then as Peter moves from that, it's it's interesting because verses 4 through 10 seem to be a bit of a diversion in his thought. But actually, the way Peter is thinking, the growth that takes place is what develops the function of our priesthood, which is what he's developing in these next uh, five or six verses. So he says that he starts off coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. And as I pointed out last time, uh, what we have here is a somewhat convoluted way of of expressing this because he starts with the, the, this whole uh, verse is a participial uh, clause. But you don't get the main verb until you get down into uh, verse 5. So like the trouble I always had reading German. In German, the, the verb uh, can come second, but if you have a helping word, that's first, and then the verb goes at the end of the sentence, and if the sentence is four lines long, you don't know what the, ver- what the action word is until you get to the end of the sentence. Only people like that could fall for Hitler. I mean, it's convoluted logic. So, but that's what happens here is Peter's, the focal point here is he's saying that you, and it's, I think it's descriptive. We'll talk about the, uh, there's a little bit of a exegetical issue there. I think he's describing that sense, that, that participle, as I pointed out last time, should be translated as a temporal, talking about since the time that they were saved, since the time that they came to Jesus, who's described as the living stone. Since then, they have been growing. They've been, they are being built up by the Lord, a spiritual house, holy priesthood, for the purpose of offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, that opens up a whole realm of application that is very important because we often don't think of our lives as a sacrifice. And one of the reasons we don't is because we have a perverted human viewpoint concept of what sacrifice is. People think that sacrifice means giving something up. But what we'll see when we get into that is that praise, that is singing hymns to God, praising God and being thankful to Him, is considered a sacrifice of praise. Now, we don't feel like we're giving up anything when we are expressing our gratitude or thankfulness to God. And the reason I say that is that shows that the way many people perceive sacrifice is somehow I've got to feel like I'm giving up something for God and and I'm doing something and I'm hurting and somehow I'm feeling that I don't have something that I ought to have, that that's the essence of sacrifice. And that's not the essence of sacrifice in Scripture. It is uh, offering something to God freely, and it does not necessarily involve a sense of uh, a, a sense of loss. Now, I pointed out last time. This is crucial to understanding this section. So we have to understand the nature of the church, the body of Christ. So this circle describes the body of Christ. It's comprised of Gentiles and Jews, but the Jews are just a subset within the body of Christ. 
So the whole circle equals all church-age believers who are equal members of the body of Christ. There's no distinction. The Jews are a subset of the body of Christ, and this is described by the term remnant. Now, I don't know where this came from or why we got it, but I have heard a number of people over the years talk about uh, the believers in this country and describe them by the term remnant. But if you are biblical, the term remnant only is used in the Bible to refer to the believers in Israel. Old Testament remnant were the believers in the promise of the coming Messiah. Paul refers to himself in uh, Romans 11.5 as a member of the remnant of Israel. That is, those Jews who trusted in Jesus as, as Messiah. So what applies to the remnant applies to the entire body of Christ. And I think that's what Peter is doing here is he's talking to primarily Jewish background believers, and he's pointing out and reminding them of what their spiritual heritage was as Jews, but that doesn't mean that some of this doesn't apply equally uh, to Gentiles. So back to our verse. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God uh, through Christ. So the main idea here is you're being built up since the time that you were saved. So as I pointed out last time, we're coming to Jesus as a living stone, which sort of sounds like an oxymoron. Stones are not alive. Stones are inanimate, but this is a living stone. And again and again in Scripture, we see the Bible refer to God in the Old Testament as the living God, in contrast to the inanimate gods of the uh, of the pantheons of the various pagans, the idols that are made out of stone and wood and metal. And today we have uh, just as wicked a gods, but they're gods that are constructed in the mind. There are a lot of Christians who have never read much in the Bible or studied much about Jesus, and they have an image of Jesus in their mind that is not biblical, and it's idolatrous. They have an image of God in their mind that's not biblical, it's idolatrous. They have also lust patterns. Paul in Colossians chapter uh, 3 talks about greed as idolatry, so materialism is idolatrous. It's not wrong to have things or enjoy things, but if the pursuit of material things, the pursuit of success, the pursuit of all the things that money can buy takes precedent over uh, the study of the Word of God and spiritual growth and serving God, then it becomes idolatrous. So in this opening verse, uh, he uh, reminds them that since they came to him, that is Jesus, as to a living stone, and then he's going to unpack that, and he uses the term rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. What's interesting is he's going to quote the verses uh, from Psalm 118, 22. He's going to quote verses from Isaiah chapter uh, 28, verse 16. That's where this language comes from, but he sort of paraphrases it or summarizes it at the beginning. That's another reason I think that that he's writing to Jewish background believers that the 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 text of First Peter is so loaded with Old Testament references and presuming that they understand the meaning of these things that that what what we see in 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 Judaism at the time is often they would quote a verse or they would quote the first verse and expect their reader to know the whole psalm or the whole chapter so that that in in Judaism often they would just quote a part a verse or part of a verse and they're really alluding to the whole thing. We see a little bit of this it's almost in reverse in passages in in the New Testament for example in Hebrews chapter 8 when uh when the writer of Hebrews is talking about the new covenant and he quotes all three verses in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33, and all that he, the only point he makes is, the reason it says, 
because it says new covenant, that tells us that the old covenant was to go away. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is quoting from Joel 2, and he quotes the whole passage in Joel 2 about what what will happen in the day of the Lord, except um, he's only emphasizing one thing, that this is the kind of thing the Holy Spirit can do. So sometimes we have brought big passages where just one point is being made, and other times there's like when the Lord is on the cross and he says, my, screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, he probably was reciting much of that that psalm. That's the first verse, and it is, would be the title for the psalm. We call it uh, Psalm 22, 22. They called it, My God, My God, Why Have You Forsaken Me? So the living stone imagery and the the other words that are used here would bring to the mind of a Jewish person many of these Old Testament verses. Now, we're told that this living stone is a stone that's rejected by men. And the verb there in the, in the uh, Greek is a perfect middle participle. Well, we don't need to talk much about the participial sense of this, but the perfect tense indicates completed action. This isn't ta- an, uh, a present tense that's talking about ongoing rejection. It's not an aorist tense, which is just a simple past, which would just be talking about something that had happened, that perfect tense is, is a, would be used to express the fact that this is something that had happened. He's referring to a specific kind of rejection that was completed and over with and wasn't continuing anymore, but they were living now with the results of that past action. And that past rejection, using the same Greek word is described in Mark 8.31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. So this is Jesus teaching the disciples and that he must be rejected, and he's referring to that that same word is being used there. Uh, It's a different parsing there. The parsing I have there just came over from the other slide. But that's what it's talking about, that rejection of Jesus that occurred in 33 A.D. when the religious leaders of Israel rejected rejected uh, Jesus as Messiah. And then he goes on, and he uses uh, two other words to describe this, the word chosen and precious. And the word chosen is this Greek, Greek word, eklektos, which means uh, elect, but it also has the idea of choice. The You've heard me teach this many times now. The uh, Old Testament word was bachar, and it's used in several places in the Old Testament not to describe a selection process or an election process, but the quality of people. For example, in the uh, war between uh, the various Israelite tribes and the tribe of Benjamin that's described at the end of the book of Judges. It says that the, the, that the uh, Benjamites had choice warriors, and that's how it's translated in the text. These were the cream of the crop. This was their elite fighting force. They had choice warriors, so it's describing something qualitative, not a selection process. But because of the influence of Augustinian theology on uh, Calvin and on Luther and the sort of a determinative type of of, uh, theology that we often refer to as Calvinism, but it goes back to Augustine in the 5th century, that that the the mindset was to always translate this word as, um, as elect. And that takes us off course here, I think, because the word is used in conjunction with this second word translated precious, which is the Greek word entomos, which has that idea of something that is precious, something that is highly valuable. So contextually, both of these words are describing something that has quality and value. The, the idea of selection or choice is not in part of the context. And it's not part of the original context in Isaiah 28, uh, 16. I put 
two different translations up here for a reason I'll explain in just a minute. In the top translation, after God is announcing judgment that's going to come on a future generation of Israel uh, that will come under judgment from the Babylonians, he then provides what what the solution will be. He says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation or a foundation stone, a tried stone. And that word there in the Hebrew means a stone of proving. It's been proven. It's the, the quality of it has been assessed. Okay, it's like you uh, you 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 demonstrate something. You take it to you take some uh, uh, ore to the assayist, and he will prove it. He will show what is of value there, the gold or the silver that is there. So that's the idea there. It is a tried or tested or evaluated stone, and that's a reference to Jesus, and he'll be. He'll be uh, proven, and it's uh, also it's the idea that it's tried and it's precious. It is intrinsically precious. Okay, so that's talking about the quality of it again. So that's the context of what um, uh, Peter is alluding to here uh, in, in Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. Now, at the end of this verse, it goes on to say it's a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. All of this is in- indicating its quality. Whoever believes will not act hastily. That's the uh, New King James translation, and that's a little uh, ambiguous, isn't it? A little cloudy. Not too sure what that means. And I put this up here because the NET translates it, the one who maintains his faith will not panic. The one who believes it will not uh, act hastily. He will not act quickly. He will not uh, lose his lose control of his thinking and uh, get out of control. That's the idea, because the person who is uh, grounding his faith on the foundation stone is going to be stabilized by his faith in Christ. That's the idea in the text. This idea that the um, that the stone also is going to be a stone of stumbling is in Isaiah eight thirteen and 14, which says, The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow or set aside or sanctify. Let him be your fear. Remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge. Let him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary. Now think about this. We're going to get into this passage, and it's going to talk about building a spiritual house, other verses we'll look at are talking about building a spiritual temple. The Lord will be as a sanctuary. This is a mikdosh in the uh, in the Hebrew, which is the word that is used to describe the tabernacle uh, in the Old Testament. It is from the the uh, verb kadash, which means a set apart place, a place that has been sanctified. So that's what it means to be a sanctuary. We get the idea of a sanctuary city today where people can go who are not, haven't come into the country legally and then they can't be arrested or prosecuted if they make it to this sanctuary. The idea of going to a church at one time, if you'd committed a crime and you fled into the, uh, inside of the church, then you had sanctuary there and the police couldn't come and arrest you. Uh, that's not the idea here. It is the idea of a set-apart or a holy place. God will be our our holy place. We will rest in him. And it goes on to say in Isaiah 14, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel. So this foundation stone is indicated as a place that will be a um, a stumbling place. People will trip over over it, and they w- it will cause them injury because they have rejected Jesus as the rock. So he becomes, instead of a foundation and the solution to their problems, because they reject him, he will become a trap and a snare, and they will be uh, come under the judgment of God. So back to our passage in 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5, he's rejected by men, that's the idea that they repudiate him, they turn their back on him, they're hostile to him, rejected by men, but but choice and precious by God. That describes the quality of this living stone. 
And then we get into something that drove me nuts most of the day. I'd looked at it. In fact, I may have said something about this last week because it uh, reads a little... Uh, Peter has some odd Greek here. And he starts off this verse with a with a pr- uh, pronoun in the plural. It's autoi plus the conjunction autoi chi. And it looks like, in fact, I mentioned it to Jim. He said, well, that's these are... And that's what it looked like, and that's how I translated it. But I've, nobody translated it that way, and I was scratching my head from last week, and I finally found uh, in, a, in a grammar that autos can be used as either also can be used as a first or second person pronoun. So it's normally used as a third person pronoun, but rarely as, a, as either I or you, and it... Um, uh, it has the idea of of, of emphasis, uh, and so it's called an emphatic demonstrative, and basically it means you yourself. I don't know why the scripture translators don't ever tra- catch that. It's it's really emphatic. He's saying you yourselves uh, are are living stones. He's really making it clear that by their coming to the living stone, they too are also living stones and that something is happening to them as a living stone. They are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now this verb, oikodemeo, that we have is a word that is not unfamiliar to many of us. It means to something for something to be built up. It's a construction term. And it is sometimes uh, used of personal, uh, personal edification. And as personal edification, you have in a number of places where we are to edify uh, one another, or the pastor is to edify the congregation to build them up spiritually. But it's also used of the construction of the and the building up of the body of Christ from its beginning at the, on the day of Pentecost until its completion at the end of the church age. We see it first used this way in Matthew 16, 18, and 19. I talked about this a little bit last time. We covered this in Matthew. Jesus is uh, talking to Peter and the disciples up near Caesarea Philippi in the north of Israel in a, in a beautiful setting there near uh, the temple to the Greek god Pan at a place called Banyas because Arabs can't pronounce the letter P. So instead of saying Pan, they would say Ban. Now, here's a really... If you don't get anything out of this Bible class, if you don't get anything spiritual from this, just this is a subtle argument why why the there's no truth to to the Palestinian claim that Palestine is their is their home. Why would they call themselves a name that begins with a letter they can't pronounce? They're Palestinians. They live in Palestine. If you talk to an Arab, he'll never say he's a Palestinian. Why would they do that? You know, end of story. Kick them out. It's not their country. They didn't come up with that name. Okay? So, just a little extra added attraction there. So Jesus says to Peter and to the disciples, well, who do people say that I am? And the disciples say, well, some people think you're Elijah, some people John the Baptist. I didn't know they believed in reincarnation, but apparently they had some. They, they were saying the people had these ideas, and um, and so then Jesus said, "Well, who do you think that I am?" And Peter said, "You are the Christ. You are the Mashiach. You are the Son of the Living God." There's that idea of living God again, emphasizing that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a, is a living God, and so. Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of, son of John. He says, And I also say to you that you are Peter, Petros, and there's a play on words here in the Greek, and on this rock, Petra, which is a, a, a feminine term uh, for a large rock, he says, I will build my church, 
And there's a lot of debate over what he's referring to when he says on this rock. Some people think it's the statement identifying him as the Messiah. Some people think it's the statement of, um, of faith believing in uh, in Jesus or Peter's identification. But I believe, that, as I pointed out last time, that he's referring to himself because the term rock is a title that is used of God all through the Old Testament. We went through numerous verses last night, last time showing that how the term rock and stone are, are often and frequently used to describe God in the Old Testament. So Jesus is saying here, though, the point I'm making here, this is oikotomeo, and Jesus is saying he's going to build his church. Now, another point here is that at the end of John, in John chapter 21, Jesus had another conversation with Peter. And in John chapter 21, he's, uh, he tells Peter, he, uh, he, he, Peter has just been forg- realized his forgiveness from the Lord for betraying him. And then the Lord says, well, Peter, do you love me? Three times he says, Peter, do you love me? And the first and the last time he uses the same word, middle, he uses a different word. He uses a lot of different synonyms. But each time when Peter says, Lord, I love you, Jesus says something about what Peter's supposed to do. He's supposed to feed my sheep, Jesus says. You are to tend my lambs, Jesus says. And he uses different words for lambs and sheep, so he's covering the, the all the maturity levels in the flock. And he uses different words for feeding, but he's making the point that the role of the shepherd is not to go to the hospital. There's nothing wrong with going to the hospital if you're a pastor, but that's not the primary job. There are people in the congregation that have the gift of mercy, and they're the ones who should be going to the hospital using their gift of mercy. And pastors should help, but just as every believer should help, but that's not his primary job. His primary job is to feed the sheep. Now, in Matthew uh, 16, Jesus says, tells us what his mission is in relation to the church. He says, I will build my church. I often wonder why all, it's, it's the vogue thing for the last 50 years for seminaries to have courses on church growth. Church growth starts and ends with Matthew 16, 18. Jesus said, I'll build my church, you feed the sheep. And what happens today is that most pastors and seminaries think that it's the job of the pastor to build a church and the Sunday school teachers to feed the sheep. And that's why we have the mess we're in today, because we have an uneducated laity in the church, because they're not being taught by people who have a, a solid education in, in the scriptures. So... And they're not trusting the Lord to build a church. They're trusting in all kinds of techniques and all kinds of different methodologies that are borrowed usually from salesmanship and motivational things. And so, uh, as Harry Leaf told me when I was first ordained by him, he said, Robbie, always remember anybody who is smart and who has some understanding of business can go out and build a huge organization. But that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit had anything to do with it. You can have a congregation of 50 or 100 uh, people or even 10 people, and if those 10 people are the growth of the Holy Spirit, then you're going to do great. But if you've got 300 people and the Holy Spirit brought you 10, you're going to have trouble because they really don't want to be there to learn the Word of God and to grow. So we've got to understand that it is the Lord who brings the increase. It's the Lord who is in control, and he's the one who builds the church. And this is part of what is being talked about in First Peter, because we're talking about the universal church, not just not the local church. People get confused on that. Uh, Jesus is talking about he's the one who builds the universal church, builds his body. And I think that by implication is that he's the one who brings people into local churches as well. So in verse 5, you yourselves also as these living stones, which teaches that, that this is an, a, a dynamic process, that as m- more come to believe in Jesus and are added, then the building continues to grow. So this is, this is a process. You're being built up. And then he says, a spiritual house 
to a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, this is another place where, where Peter's grammar is tough. Because the word that's translated a spiritual house, and I have it in this panel on the lower right, is oikos pneumatikos. And that, if you parse those two nouns, they're both in the nominative case. Now, that's the case of the subject or a predicate nominative. It's not the case of a dative or the direct object or the indirect object. It's the case of the, of the subject or maybe an appositional phrase to the subject. So by translating it, you're being built up, and some translations even put you're being built up as a spiritual house or you're being built up to a spiritual house. Well, that violates the sense of the grammar. I think, and I read this in a few commentaries where they actually address this, is that the term spiritual house is appositional to the subject of the verb. And the subject of the verb is you. You all are being built up. So what Peter is saying is you all, a spiritual house. The term spiritual house is explaining who they are. You are a spiritual house, as and you're being built up uh, to a priesthood. Now, that word to is probably not the original word there. It indicates direction. It, it was... Uh, it, so what we have here is basically an identification. You also, a spiritual house, as living stones are being built up. And in some of the older manuscripts, it's inserted the preposition ace, translated to, which might... Um, might have just been done in order to give it a little more clarity. Uh, holy priesthood is is uh, definitely in the uh, accusative, so that indicates direction. And that's our growth is to grow and to be more and more functional as holy priests. That's the direction. So you yourselves, a spiritual house, uh, living stones being built up to be or to a holy priesthood for the purpose of offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, at this point, I want to stop a little bit and go to another passage to try to help us understand the nature of this spiritual house. This is important for understanding and properly interpreting the rest of the section in terms of what applies to Gentiles and what applies to Jews. So I want you to turn with me to uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Are we still in process here? Does that mean we're into process theology? Okay. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Now, everybody's familiar with the first ten verses, or probably the first nine verses of Ephesians, and less so with the uh, remainder of of, uh, Ephesians chapter 2. But the next part of Ephesians 2 is really crucial for understanding what happened on the cross in relation to the formation of this new entity or organism known as the body of Christ. So we're going to start in verse 11 to give a little backdrop and just, I just want to read it through and give some explanation as we work our way through the, through the text. In verses 11 to 13, that's our first chunk, Paul is descri- describing those who were once Gentiles in the flesh. Now it might be easy at first blush to think that when he uses the word Gentile here, he's using it as a synonym for unbelievers. But that would be wrong. Now they are unbelievers, but that's not the point he's making if you look at the text. He says, therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. So as soon as he brings in the terms circumcision and uncircumcision, what should you be thinking about? The Abrahamic covenant. 
So the backdrop to this is going to be the covenantal relationship of Jews to God and the non-covenantal relationship of the Gentiles to God. It doesn't have anything to do with their soteriological status because some Jews are not saved. They're still uh, in the covenant with God. They're still part of the Abrahamic covenant. And some Gentiles were saved, but they didn't come under the Abrahamic covenant. They remained uh, saved Gentiles in the Old Testament. There. Okay. All right. So we're looking at Ephesians 2, 11 to 13. It sounds like I've got an echo up here. So in 2, 11 to 13, Paul's talking about the fact that they're Gentiles, but his emphasis is explained as he goes through the text. There, the uncircumcision versus circumcision. The volume on the speakers may be a little loud because I'm speaking very softly because I'm getting a lot of reverb. Okay. Is that better? All right. So he's contrasting, in already indicating this contrast is going to be between those who are uh, under the Abrahamic covenant and those who aren't. He says, at that time you were without Christ, which clearly shows that he's adding the idea of their spiritual status now. Now he's making it clear that they were unbelievers. You were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. That's what makes the difference between a Gentile and a Jew. Having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, that is, the death of Christ. So the point that he's making here is you had Jews and Gentiles in the Old Testament. Jews had a covenant with God, Gentiles didn't. So they're separated and they're far off. So you have these two different people. Then in verse 14 he says... Um, that he begins in verse 14 for he himself is our peace Christ is the one who is going to be the peacemaker between Jew and Gentile so he is our peace who has made both one the both refer to Jew and Gentile so we're not we're not talking about man and God yet we're just talking about the, the distinction between Jew and Gentile. So Christ is our peace who brings Jew and Gentile together. He's broken down the middle wall of separation. That's that, the wall is described in verse 15 as the law of commandments contained in ordinances. That's why Peter would not have gone to a Gentile's house to eat trafe. That's non-kosher food. He goes, he is, and thus God tells him, and God had to tell him three times to take and eat from that big tablecloth that he lowered. And, uh, and still it was difficult for Peter to understand that the point was that now he could go and he could fellowship with Gentiles. Otherwise, as an Orthodox observant, uh, law observant Jew, he would never do that. So the law of commandments kept Jew and Gentile separate. Um, and so what Jesus has done is he's abolished in his flesh that enmity between Jew and Gentile so as to create in himself, another phrase for that is in Christ, in himself one new man from the two. So up to the cross you have Jew and Gentile, but now because of the cross there's a new entity that's going to join the two together. One new man from the two, thus making peace. Now, this isn't peace with God yet. This is peace between Jew and Gentile because the law of commandments has been fulfilled and abrogated. So once he does that so that the you can have one new man from the two, he says, and that he might then reconcile them. Now we get to the point of the vertical that he might reconcile them both to God in one body. That's the body of Christ. That he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Now, what enmity is that? Not the enmity that we have toward God, but that enmity uh, between Jew and Gentile that's based on the law and the 613 ordinances in the law. So in verse 17 we read, And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and those who were near. He's not saying to those who were unbelievers and those who were believers. 
those who are far off or those who are away from the cross, those who are not in a covenant relationship with God, those who are near were the Jews who were in a covenant relationship with God. It doesn't have anything to do with their soteriological status, but their covenant status. And now that they have been brought together in one body, verse 18 says, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. What does that describe? That's the function of priesthood. That because we have a high priest who has uh, torn down the veil, we have access to God. That's, that's Hebrews. We have access to God so that we can uh, go directly and boldly before the throne of grace. That's the function of our priesthood. So it's not an explicit reference to priesthood here. It's an implicit reference, but it's very clear that this is talking about a priestly function to have direct access to God. Then we go to verse 19. Now, therefore, Paul says, you are no longer you. He's writing to the Ephesians. They're primarily Gentiles. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. See, there's those terms related strangers and foreigners to, co- to relates to the covenant. But now you're fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So we have some of the same language here that we have over in First Peter related to the cornerstone and related to uh, construction, the foundation stone and household of God. Then we get into the core verses here, verses 21 and 22. In whom the whole building being fitted together grows, that's the process through the church age of the development of the, of the church, the body of Christ, grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom also you are being built for, built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. So the, First word, whole building, is this this word uh, here, uh, oikoidome. And it refers to a building or something that is being built up. But here it refers to a building because it is connected to a... This is a spiritual building, not a physical building. And it connects to the temple, which is the word naos. Naos is a term that refers to the inner sanctuary of the, of the temple. It's not our bodies are the temple, the naos of the Holy Spirit, not the heros. Heros would include all the temple precincts, the court of the Gentiles, those things. That's why we can say Christians can't be demon possessed because we are uh, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the word for temple wouldn't include the outer courtyard, just the inner holy of holies where only someone truly sanctified could go. Where, where Christ indwells. Uh, the whole building is being fitted together, and that whole building in context is being grown, brought together by Jews and Gentiles together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together. That's the word in the lower left, soon, soon oikadameo. Notice it's the O-I-K-O that you find in oikotome, soon oikotomeo, and kat oiketerion. That's your root word for a house or a building. The verb here, you have a preposition soon plus the same verb that we have in in, uh, 1 Peter 2. They're being built together for a dwelling place. That's this word here, kat oiketerion, the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So what we see from Ephesians here is that in the church, the body of Christ, Jew, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile is torn down. So it's it's that, that diagram I had earlier. Jews are a subset in the body of Christ, but Jewish believers and Gentile believers in the church age are equal. They The, the dividing wall is torn down. They're now one in the body of Christ and united in the body of Christ. This is found in other passages such as Ephesians 4 4. There's one body, not two. There's not a Jewish body and a Gentile body. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. 
And then in Galatians three twenty six to 28, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, that would be the baptism of the Holy Spirit, a, a non-water baptism that happens at the instant of salvation for every believer, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. So there's not a distinction. The distinction is going to come because Jewish background believers have a cultural history and they have a tradition and they're still part of the Abrahamic covenant because they're ethnically Jews. And the Abrahamic covenant applies to all Jews whether they're believers or not. I mean, if they are an apostate, does the principle, I will bless those who bless you, have a qualifier? Does God say in the Old Testament to the Assyrians, uh, I will bless you even if you curse Israel? No, later on, and and same with the Babylonians, because they were anti-Semitic, even though God used them as a tool to bring judgment on Israel. God was true to the Abrahamic covenant and said, I will curse those who curse you, even if the Jews that you were cursing were apostate Jews. The principle was still true. The principle is still true today. Uh, If Israel is disobedient to God, God's going to deal with it. But he doesn't need Gentiles to come along and be anti-Semitic and help. That will bring divine judgment. So God still honors that Abrahamic covenant. So the sign of the covenant for the Jew is still circumcision. It doesn't make him more spiritual or less spiritual. He doesn't make him saved or savable. It's just a cultural, historical, in this case, a covenantal reality for the Jewish people. But in Christ, there's not a distinction. In our spiritual life, there's not a distinction. In our access to God, there's not a distinction. In the Old Testament, you, you get people now, you get people who want to have women pastors and they want to do all these other kinds of things and deny um, uh, the uh, role distinctions among the uh, sexes. And they go to this verse and they just hone in on, see, there's neither male nor female. So this idea that women can't be pastors That's just first century chauvinism. No, if you were saved and you were a slave, you were still a slave. If you were a man, you still had all your male body parts. If you were a woman, you still had all your female body parts. You didn't change. But in the Old Testament, a Jew could go all the way into the the temple to worship God, but Gentiles could had to stay out. They could, couldn't go beyond the court of the Gentiles. Women couldn't go beyond the court of the women. Men could go all the way in. Slaves could not go in. So all of these terms, and and this whole idea is that uh, that in the body of Christ, Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, all have equal access to God unlike what they had in the Old Testament. And that's going to relate to our priesthood and the function of our priesthood as believers in the body of Christ. So back to 1 Peter 2.5. We're being built up a spiritual house. This is the body of Christ. It's a spiritual temple. It's also, he says, we're a holy priesthood. So uh, I didn't change the translation here. It should be you also a spiritual house as living stones are being built up a holy priesthood it's again describing the directionality there to a holy priesthood for the purpose of offering up spiritual sacrifices now the word translated priesthood here is uh keratuma which refers to the function of a priest it's only used twice in the new testament and that's in verse Five of this chapter and verse 9 of this chapter. And the purpose uh, is then described in ter- terms of offering up spiritual sacrifices. Now there's a verse that may connect to this, Hebrews 10.21, that we have a high priest who's over the house of God. So that's talking about the church body. We're under Jesus Christ who is our high priest, and since he's our high priest, we're all priests. So this relates to the 
universal priesthood of the believer. And what we do is we offer up sacrifices. And this is the Greek word anaphero, which literally means to lift something up, but is the word that is used all the time to translate Old Testament words for offering a sacrifice, bringing an offering to the cross. And so we are to offer up these uh, spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. Now, the word for sacrifice, I didn't put it on the slide, is thusia, which is your standard word for sacrifice. It's the word we see uh, throughout the New Testament, especially in the verse we'll end with, uh, Romans 12.1. But these sacrifices are to be acceptable to God. You prosdectos. And that means that there can be unacceptable sacrifices. Unacceptable sacrifices would be sacrifices that are made in the power of the flesh, in the power of the sin nature. When we're walking according to the flesh and we think somehow we're doing something that's impressing God, uh, we're praising God, we're giving thanks to God, we're giving offering or whatever, and it's just done in the power of the flesh. Now, this word, uprostectos, uh, is used in a couple of interesting passages. For example, Romans fifteen sixteen, Paul says that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering, now that's not the word for sacrifice, it's the word for offering, uh, making um, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, but what makes it acceptable? It's sanctified by the Holy Spirit. See, if you're not walking by the Spirit, it's not sanctified by the Spirit. If you're not walking in the light, walking in the truth, abiding in Christ, then it's not. See, if we're not doing those things, then we're out of fellowship. The only way Scripture says that we can be spiritually cleansed and restored is to confess sin. So just a couple of points on how sacrifice is used in the New Testament for the believer. First of all, our spiritual walk, when we're walking by the Holy Spirit, our spiritual walk, our spiritual life is called an offering and it has, it's compared to a sweet smelling, uh, sacrifice in the Old Testament. It's an offering and a sweet smelling sacrifice to God. Ephesians 5-2. Paul says, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet, uh, smelling aroma. Uh, so this is the walk in love. It's an offering and a sacrifice to God. Point number two. Grace-oriented giving is called a sweet-smelling sacrifice to God. Philippians 4.18, Paul is praising and he's grateful for the Philippians because of the offering that they've brought. He said, Indeed, I have all and abound. I'm full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So their gifts given, sanctified by the Spirit, is an acceptable sacrifice. Third, the believer who gives his life to the service of God in whatever capacity, whether it's full-time professional or full-time non-professional. The believer who gives his life to the service of God in the gospel is described as a sacrifice in the service of your faith. Philippians 2.17, Paul says, Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering, so his life was viewed as a sacrifice. If I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice in service of your faith. So he's had poured out, but they're also viewed as a uh, as the sacrifice and service of their faith. Fourth, singing praise to God is called a sacrifice of praise. Not too many people feel like they're being sacrificial when they're standing up and singing "Wonderful Grace of Jesus," but that's a sacrifice if you understand the biblical term correctly. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Fifth, applying doctrine through gracious acts and uh, divine good, good works for people, helping others is a sacrifice with which God is well pleased, Hebrews thirteen sixteen. But do not forget to do good and to share for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased, of course, if it's done by the, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then in closing, Romans 12.1, Paul says, I beseech you or I implore you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's a function of a priest, to present a sacrifice. 
that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your logical service, your rational service, your logicon. That's the same word that's used for the word of God, the milk of the word in First Peter 2.2. 2. So that helps us think this through a little bit more, that when Peter is talking to Jewish background believers uh, relating uh, Old Testament concepts of priesthood to them, he's not setting them apart from the rest of the body of Christ, but he's reminding them that what they had and what they were called to in the Old Testament is being realized in a fuller dimension than they ever imagined as they are now in Christ. And the reason he's telling them this is to motivate them to greater growth and maturity and spiritual service. Let's close in prayer. Father, thanks for this opportunity to study your word and to be reminded that we are uh, expected to grow, that we have been called to walk in the good works prepared beforehand, and that we are to serve you with our lives, and that our lives in many dimensions is a service, a sacrifice to you, a function of our priesthood, that we can continue to grow and mature and being conformed to the image of Christ and manifesting your essence to those around us. Father, challenge us with what we've studied. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.